powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to Friends, Foes, and Neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, as what you are about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show. Prepare yourself for insightful interviews with incredible people. Join us now as we delve ever deeper into the human condition. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall! Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's Better, H-E-L-P dot com slash Derek Duvall Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say an absolute massive thank you to my last guest, Anne-Marie Principe. The response to that episode was incredible, not just emotional. If you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 233, and we have a great episode lined up for you today. In a first for the Derek Duvall Show, we have brought back a guest for his very own episode. That's right, the star of episode 65, Captain Dale Dye, has returned to the studio. Captain Dye has just finished production on the Apple TV Plus World War II series Masses of the Air, and we'll be discussing all aspects of his participation in the production. Captain Die was a huge fan favorite when his episode aired in 2022, so it was a real treat to get him back on the show. So let's not waste any time and get him out here. Duval Nation, please welcome back to the show, calling in today from his home in the great state of Texas, the one and only Captain Dale Die. <laughs> Captain Die, welcome back to the Derek Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today? It's good. Uh, we're in South Central Texas, so uh, you know it's a little little chill in the air, but but nothing nothing that I can't certainly not like the last year or so in UK. I'll tell you. Yeah. No, it's been a long time since you graced our ears on episode sixty five, and you've been a very very busy man. You teased on an episode that you had just wrapped production on a new Tom Hanks Steven Spielberg World War Two production that you couldn't tell us much more about, other than it focused on the men of the hundredth bomb group. And that project is now what we know as masters of the air is premiered to great success and acclaim on Apple TV plus let's start at the beginning. How did you get involved in that project? Well, it was uh, the third element of a trilogy that uh, Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks uh, had put together known commonly with among us as the world war II trilogy uh, began with band of brothers and then went to the Pacific they called me and said, listen, we're going to do the air portion. And I said, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, we're going to do the 8th Air Force, focus on the 100th Bomb Group Heavy and uh, flying missions out of UK uh, over Nazi-occupied Europe. And I said, sure, uh, I'm I'm in, but you have to understand that I'm not an aviator and, and none of my guys really are aviators. They said, well, that's not what we're worried about. Uh, and I said, well, what are you worried about? He said, well, we need to soldier them up. If you think about it, and we did very deeply, 
those young men uh, during World War II had to be soldiers first, and then they became airmen, and then they became B-17 crews. So we kind of approached it in that fashion. Um, I said, look, you need to give me two weeks and let me soldier them up, uh, get them in the right mindset, and we'll do kind of a, uh, uh, a crawl, walk, run approach to this thing. So we'll teach them to soldier first. We'll uh, teach them that the mission is the thing. It's not you. It's, uh, it's the mission overall writ large. And once you've got that in mind, we'll begin to focus on uh, what it was like to be a B-17 crewman. And then we'll get specific. And, and that's what we did. Uh, we started from the most minute detail of soldiering and then moved directly uh, down the road until we got to specific details of uh, being a crewman on a B-17 in, in World War II. All right. How did you approach this series differently than from Band of Brothers or the Pacific? Well, it, it, was, uh, it was a little bit uh, worrying for us because we, for years, uh, and our best projects have always been full immersion things. Uh, where we have the actors 24 hours a day and they live with us in the field, wherever we are, no outside contact whatsoever. And we use that isolation to put them in the right mindset, to focus them specifically on the mission at hand, which is recreating a, a slice of history. Uh, but in this one, uh, because of scheduling and budgeting and a number of other things, we weren't going to be allowed to have them for, for 24 hours. So uh, we we were worried about it. My executive officer and I were worried about it. And we thought about it and said, well, look, look, this is going to hurt. And then the more we delved into it, we said, no, wait a minute, maybe we can use this. Because the truth of the matter is that uh, bomber crews flying out of bases in East Anglia uh, over Nazi-occupied France essentially were eight or nine hours on a mission. And then assuming they survived, they returned to a relatively garrison-type life. So let's use that. That's what we'll do. We'll train them for 12, 14 hours a day, and then we'll turn them loose, and they can go have a beer and do whatever they want to do, talk about how nasty we were, and so on and so forth. And then we bring them back in the next morning, and, and we begin over again, just as though they were the next day getting ready to fly another mission. So while we were worried about it to begin with, it actually played into our hands. Mm. How did Austin Butler, the rest of the cast, acclimate to your legendary military boot camp style of preparation? As this is not well, an infantry-based film as opposed to the other previous two films. Yes, but you want to remember, they're a soldier first. Right. So the interesting thing was, and and I guess I get it, the business of training with us has become so apocryphal now that a lot of them had called each other and said, what do you know about Captain Dye and his deal? What what are we going to have to do? What are we going to have to go through? So we, our hand was tipped a bit before we went in. And I think everybody was kind of expecting it to be tough. And we, we wanted to do that. We wanted to make it tough. Uh, we wanted to make them pay in a little bit, uh, pay into the, to the situation so that when they were portraying these people on film, they had some skin in the game. They had paid some dues. So we went at it in that fashion. Okay. Did you learn anything new about this phase of the war doing your research for this project? Hundreds of things, literally hundreds of things. Uh, we had to do so much research. And we were fortunate we were able to go back into the uh, 1940s era Army Air Corps training manuals uh, 
and we read memoir after memoir after memoir. And we were look we're, we weren't looking for the history, the historical recounts of what was happening. Uh, we had Miller's book for that. What we were really interested in was individual experiences. Uh, what was it like? What did they think? What did they feel like? What did they? What specific things did they experience? If they were a uh, a ball turret gunner, or if they were one of the uh, waste gunners, or a tail gunner. What specific things did they tell us in those memoirs? And we must have read literally hundreds of them. And we we compiled that into what must have been a relatively common experience. And we did find some common denominators, some things that they all experienced, some business about high-altitude flying and oxygen and the electric suits and how dangerous it was to touch anything metal up in there with your bare hands because of the cold, uh, what it was like to be wounded when, a, when an aircraft was shot up. How do you get out? What, what sort of parachute rig do you have? What sort of uh, survival equipment have you got? And, and as we began to teach that then, as experiences that other people have had, and here's what you might, might experience, what you might have in mind. But there were literally hundreds of things uh, that I had no idea about. Because as I said, I'm not, I'm not an aviator. So uh, there were a lot of things about just flying in that, in that big aluminum tin can with four engines out there and all the flak popping and all the German fighters coming in that it was hard even for me to imagine having been in combat. Uh, I know the jeopardy involved, but that's a special kind of jeopardy. And it really takes a special kind of person. This is one of the things that we were trying so hard to teach. You have to imagine that every time they boarded one of those B-17s, every time they got into a flying fortress, the odds were against them. It was a crapshoot. Were they, were they going to survive? Well, they hoped so. Certainly they did. But they knew the odds were against them. And yet they, they climbed aboard and they did it again. Now, why? Why? What, what is it that made them special? Well, there were a lot of things that made them special. A willingness to face danger like that, but most importantly, to do it repeatedly against the odds, simply because in a world at war, it was the right thing to do. And, and that was a thing that, that was surprising to me. And it was a difficult thing to teach to young men who hadn't faced that kind of jeopardy. One of the questions I want to ask you is, you know, you know, were there actual B-17s on set? And if so, did you get any flight time while you were in the, while they were on set? I, I, I have flown in a B-17. Had nothing to do with this particular, uh, I've flown at a 24 and a 17. So I had a little bit of uh, firsthand experience with it. Um, but those were just uh, paid for rides that, that I got with some friends of mine who were collectors and aviators and that sort of thing. Uh, we didn't have any flying B-17s on the set. But I have to say that uh, once you see the, the miniseries, the special effects certainly are the star of the show. Right. And we had two full-scale, completely replicated, down to the last rivet, B-17s on set that our designers built. And so as we were training, we began to put people inside those things. Now they weren't flying, but you got the experience of how claustrophobic and cramped it was and, and what it was like, you know, leaning into the wind out of a, a, a chin turret or out of a, uh, not a chin turret, but a, but a side a door gutter. Um, and those things um, helped us. 
we had those two uh, B-17s, one of which could be uh, moved around with a remote control, kind of like a remote control car, uh, and we could taxi it around the uh, Thorpe Abbott set. But we didn't, we, we couldn't fly one. Uh, and so that was the one thing that was missing. Although I have to say uh, we had sections of those B-17 fuselages mounted on gimbals and surrounded by uh, computer generated imagery. So that once you were in there and the gimbal began moving and you saw all of this happening around you, it was, it was as close as you're going to get to the actual experience, I think. Did the actors get any kind of basic flight or mechanical training to get you know prepared for the role? Well, we had we had two uh, gentlemen who were B seventeen pilots, uh, not veteran World War II pilots, but but who knew the the seventeen inside and outside and had flown it. Um, and so, part of our training as we got into the advanced phases of it, they spent time with them actually in a cockpit. And learn switchology and where the uh, where the yoke was and where the uh, uh, the throttles were and all that sort of thing, so that they could automatically uh, do the right thing when they were running through a checklist. Their hands went to the right switches and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, those two gents uh, were of inestimable value to us. Okay, this is the first time in the World War II trilogy that you're dealing with big name actors like Austin Butler and Barry Keegan. How do you wrangle in that stardom and make them drop, you know, individualism and make them part of the team process? Well, it certainly isn't the first time I've dealt with uh, headliners. I mean, we've we've dealt with some serious guys, um, and up to and including Tom Cruise and, and a number of others. Uh, but we always approach it the same way. The key is you've got to do something that makes them get out of themselves. Young actors uh, grow up thinking about things like how many lines do I have in this scene and how's my hair and all that sort of thing. And that's antithetical to the way soldiers think. Soldiers think about the mission, the mission first. I'm not as important as the mission is. My comfort is not important. And so you've got to put them in that mindset. So it's not about you. I don't care who you are. I don't care whether you were Elvis in a previous movie. I don't care about that. And you shouldn't be caring about it either. And as we train, I want you to wipe all of that out of your mind and focus right now on being a B-17 crewman. And uh, you'd be surprised. It works. It works enormously. Now, it requires that you isolate them. And it requires that you consistently reemphasize the fact that it's not about you. This is not a performance of Shakespeare on a stage somewhere. This is you telling the story of real men in a real situation, and you have an obligation to portray them correctly. And in order to portray them correctly, you've got to know what they knew. And that's where we go. Okay, Duval Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Captain Dale Dye. Make sure you take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep brush. You know that's right, Cluzo style. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good. Pay attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back. Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. 
Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why going forward I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring The Derek Duvall Show. BetterHelp is the world's first therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. That's BetterHelp.com slash Derek Duvall Show. We're This is Chad from The Shame. We're listening to The Derek Duvall Show. You can find our stuff at theshameshop.com or listen to it on almost all the streaming services. We'll see you down the pub. Cheers. This is William Yeski, author of the book, Damn the Valley. I invite you to take a journey into a combat deployment that I was on during 2010 while serving with the men of the 82nd Airborne Division. On that deployment, we suffered a 52% casualty rate and filled the wards at Walter Reed with soldiers that had been serving within the heavy conflict that was happening within the Argonaut River Valley. The stories contained within the book are all true and even verified by not only DOD sources, but the men that were there on the ground fighting. I should know I was one of them. It was not an easy task to write, but one that paints a vivid picture for the reader and a picture the reader won't soon forget. Pick up a copy at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, bookshop.org, or your friendly neighborhood independent bookstore today. This is Benjamin Sledge author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hi, this is Glenn. And this is Sonia from Echo Valley. And you are listening to The Derek Duval Show. Here's a song called Faces in the Mirror from our album Anarchy and Alchemy. Sergio, a 
thriving. Hello, everyone. This is Janae Sergio, life coach, combat veteran, and best-selling author. I invite you to purchase my new book, Perfectly Flawed, A Veteran's Journey from Homeless to Hero. In these pages, you will learn about the lowest struggles of my life to the absolute triumphs that have made me the strong woman I am today. Follow along as I talk about homelessness, my naval role in Operation Enduring Freedom, navigating insurmountable odds, and how I dealt with and overcame them. You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold. Welcome back to episode 233 of the Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with Hollywood's premier military technical advisor, Captain Dale Dye. Now, how much influence did you exert in the pre-production phase of the project in terms of accuracy? Well, we were surrounded, literally surrounded by historical experts, by technical experts. And so I would back away from things like, did he touch the right switch? Or did he put his hands in the right position? Or uh, is his oxygen mask correctly attached to his helmet? I backed away from those things because we had experts that knew this inside and out. My concern was their behavior. My concern was, are, are they soldiering? Are they doing the proper thing in their reactions to what's going on? Less about their actions than to their reactions. And that's what I primarily focused on. Okay. Like some of their terminology, like, you know, instead of saying, you know, swearing, actually getting like the actual verbiage for that time and of that genre, the era. Yeah, that's difficult. <clears throat> that's difficult with young men uh, who grow up on the street and yeah. uh, where profanity is right. lavish and, and outrageous in some cases. It wasn't that way. And, and of course, I had to every once in a while and say, wait a minute. They didn't even know that word in the 1940s. You can't use that one. So, but when you do that, you've got to suggest some alternates. And sometimes the alternates you subject, the, the actor will look at you and say, what? <laughs> no, my, my grandfather said that. I said, that's right. And it was your grandfather that was on this sort of thing. So you've got to, yeah, I had to watch that. I had to watch that as well as uh, Britishism uh, coming out. Uh, fortunately, all the young actors that we had um, were, were well-trained performers. Right. And so they could conquer the accent pretty well. And, and every once in a while, I'd catch a Britishism and go up and say, no, it's not that. <laughs> now, the show hasn't actually finished running yet, so I don't know the actual answer to this. But like Band of Brothers, do you have an acting credit in this series? I don't. I don't. Uh, and nor did I get one in the Pacific. And I'll tell you why. Uh, it's not because I didn't want to. Um, you know, I enjoy being part of these things, both in front of the camera and behind the camera. But uh, Tom Hanks and, and Steven Spielberg both had a, a long talk with him, and he said, look, there's good news and there's bad news. The bad news is that you can't be in these pictures. And the good news is the reason you can't be is because you were so memorable as Colonel Sink in Band of Brothers, and the fanboys will just never buy it. So you can't do it. And I was I was disappointed, but I was also complimented. Okay, fair enough. So one of the questions I want to ask you that's that's very, very important, especially when you're dealing with the World War Three with the World War Two uh trilogy is what do you want the legacy of Masters of the Air to be? Well, I think I think it's an insight, even for uh died in the wool World War II fans. 
uh, it's an insight, the amount of casualties and the risks that uh, bomber crews uh, took. Uh, you don't really realize because the focus is always on the most publicized and the most uh, uh, popular, if that's the word, but the most familiar parts of World War II, the, the island battles in, in the Pacific and D-Day uh, in, in Europe. But overhead, those guys in those B-17s and B-24s uh, and B-25s, those guys were at an enormous risk. And their casualties, there's a reason that the 100th bomb group, heavy, was called the bloody 100. Uh, they took extraordinary casualties, just way out of uh, proportion to, uh, to, the, to the number of missions that were going on. And, uh, and I would like to think that uh, we've given some people some insight into that. We've said, look, uh, you might not, you might think that war in the air is impersonal. Uh, that uh, the guys who are down there on the bloody end of a bayonet on the ground had the tough go. Actually, they didn't have the tough go if you were if you were to compare them. Of course, it's apples and oranges. But if you were to make that sort of comparison, uh, you'd, you'd see the risk that they took. Uh, everything was the enemy. Flak was the enemy. Fighters were the enemy. Altitude was the enemy. Weather was the enemy. Mechanics were the enemy. Uh, things could go wrong very easily. Uh, so they faced uh, staggering odds, literally. And I'd hope that uh, with Ben, with the Masters of the Air, that we've we've given people a little insight into that. One of the questions I remember asking you on our last appearance was that, you know, you said you had a close relationship with the cast of Band of Brothers, and you still, to this day, you said you still have a good relationship with them. Are you going to still keep in touch with the guys from Masters of the Air like you did with the cast of Band of Brothers? I suspect I will. Uh, there's been, uh, if, if you look at the trilogy, uh, Band of Brothers, The Pacific, and now Masters of the Air, uh, the Band of Brothers guys, I, I talk to them regularly. And there's a few in the Pacific that I talk to regularly. And, and I suspect, uh, knowing what I know and having spent 10 and a half months at their elbow, uh, that's going to be the same with Masters of the Air. Okay, fair enough. Moving on, there is one question that I've always wanted to ask you, and I didn't get a chance to ask it on our last interview, and it's very important that I ask you this time, and that's if there was one military film from the past that you wish you could have worked on, what movie would that have been? You know, it's it's difficult to say. You you have to you have to give me a kind of a genre here because uh, a war film, a, a war film from the past. Okay, uh, but infantry is it? Uh, it doesn't matter. It could be infantry. It could be anything. Like I, would I would have loved to. Have, I would have loved to have worked on uh, Sands Viva Jima. I think I could have brought something to that. Uh, made it a little better film. Uh, although it's a good one, uh, there are some inaccuracies and in a number of other things. I think I could have fixed that. That's one. I would have loved to have worked on uh, Sam Fuller's Steel Helmet which I think is a classic Korea story. And in fact, I've just uh, uh, finished a book. I've just published a book uh, this last year called uh, The Korean Odyssey, which is about one rifle company in Korea. And I don't mean to pull you off the subject here, but no, no. but I, I, I would love to explore Korea, uh, probably in a, in a miniseries. Uh, and I've, I've still got a, another World War II movie out there that 
that I'd like to get done uh, called No Better Place to Die. Uh, and we'll see whether that happens. That was actually going to be one, not this next question, but the next question for next is how is the writing coming along? Writing is coming along well. I mean, I do it. I do it because it scratches my creative itch, and so I'm I'm, I'm posting regularly uh, on social media. I've revived a, a column of mine, an editorial column called Checkpoint Delta, um, which is uh, you know essentially an editorial. I've got two new books out: uh, Korean Odyssey and uh, Burma File. When I'm not doing anything else, I can't sit still. So I'm pounding away on the keyboard and keeping up the legacy of being a storyteller, which I think I was born to be. Right. One of the questions I did ask is, you know, when you told people you're coming back on the show, I put it out into Twitterverse and I asked them to submit some questions. And there was one question that came up and uh, the question wants to know, can you tell a fun story of working on the film Outbreak? Outbreak. Uh, well, <clears throat> there are a number of, uh, uh, that was uh, Wolfgang Peterson. And um, uh, I had, uh, I'm trying to think of, uh, well, uh, uh, Rene Russo was in it and uh, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was great to work for. Uh, and I used to call him the little maggot uh, because he, <laughs> I would try to teach him to soldier. And then he would suddenly become Dustin Kaufman again. And I, I had always had a tough time saying, should I, should I bother him? Should I bother a guy like Dustin Hoffman and tell him that he needs to soldier up? And I would, and, and uh, he'd get a great kick out of it. Uh, it was, it was fun doing that film. I, uh, I acted in it, did, did some great work with, yeah, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland was fun to work with. And, uh, and I, there, there are probably some individual stories, but this is probably not the venue to tell them. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Um, the last time you were on the show, you discussed a possible retirement. Is that something you were still exploring? You know, I keep trying. I keep trying to uh, unplug, but people keep picking up that plug and sticking it back into the outlet. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm being. I, I can say this. I'm being a bit more choosy about what I do these days than I used to be. You know, I used to be, hell, I'll do it. What, what's next? Uh, well, I'm not doing that much anymore. And it has to do with being a bit agey. I'm going to be 80 this year. And uh, and I'm still out there running with the kids, and, and that hurts. But I, I just don't think I'm ever going to be allowed to completely retire, and that's fine. Right on. Fair enough. Captain Dye, as always, it is an honor and a pleasure to speak with you. You are welcome back on my show anytime. Please, for the love of God, keep up the good work. And thanks for coming on the show today. This is, as always, a pleasure to speak to you. My pleasure. It's always fun. So thanks. And uh, stay tuned. You never can tell what's next for me. Thanks <laughs> very much. I appreciate it. All right. And just like that, Deval Nation, we come to the end of episode 233. <laughs> I want to thank the good captain for taking the time out of his very busy press tour to make an appearance on the show. Captain Dye is a great friend of the show and someone I have the highest respect for. So, Skipper, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today, and I will see you again down the road. 
Okay, tune again next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have. So please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up today for new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, please drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the Amazing Tea Public. The Derek Duvall Show has a great little store on there with everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com. Go to the banner at the left that says Merch. Click that, and you'll be taken to our store on Tea Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, if you haven't started watching Masters of the Air, it's streaming on Apple TV Plus right now, and it is incredible. You can tell how much effort went into making this incredible show. Start watching this immediately. No star, God bless. And see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duval Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvalShow.com, for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duval Show.